Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. It's October. It's time to go into the vault. And this time we are going in for our exploration of The First Monster. This was originally published on October 27th, 2017. I remember really enjoying this episode. Yeah, this one this one really gets into some fun territory and is, I think, legitimately creepy at times. When we try – we look back we, and we just try and consider these – what may be the first uh, monsters that humans ever dreamed up and where this combination of, uh, of bestial and human uh, uh, body parts comes together and what it means. So let's get right to it. We hope you enjoy this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on The First Monster. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And of course, it's October, so we are still doing some of our favorite stuff of the year, monster content. That's right. God, did I just say content? <laughs> I'm the monster. I'm the content creating monster. Let's think of it as, as monster cargo. Monstrous oh, okay. cargo, I think, right. that we are delivering to the listeners' ears. Yeah, to create a cargo cult of our listeners. Yes. Uh, so I was wondering just recently... You know, what is the oldest monster? Hmm. Because as you go back in time, monsters become, in a way, they become less uniquely scary and they become more elementally scary. They become less like, I don't know, the girl in the ring and all that kind of recent popular monster fad stuff. And they become more like a dragon or a beast with a bull's head or something. And so I was wondering, like, yeah, what, what's the earliest thing in recorded history? There, there are some things in ancient Sumerian, Assyrian, Babylonian texts. I just wanted to read one sort of monster passage I came across from an ancient Assyrian text called The Seven Evil Spirits. This is translated into English by R.C. Thompson in 1903. And it's this ancient Assyrian poem. It goes – Raging storms, evil gods are they, ruthless demons who in heaven's vault were created are they, workers of evil are they, they lift up the head to evil, every day to evil, destruction to work. Of these seven, the first is the south wind, the second is a dragon whose mouth is opened that none can measure, the third is a grim leopard which carries off the young, the fourth is a terrible shibu. The fifth is a furious wolf who knoweth not to flee. The sixth is a rampant thing. This is a little elision. Which marches against God and king. The seventh is a storm, an evil wind which takes vengeance. Well, those, that all sounds remarkable, but I, I'm instantly thinking some of those are just animals. Like the wolf is just like a dumb wolf. Like it's, right. it's just not smart enough to run away. Right. I wonder about the grim leopard. The grim leopard sounds kind of monstrous because mm-hmm. it carries off the young. Uh, grim seems to that, – that implies some kind of human affect. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess you get into definitions of monster, right? Is a monster something that is uh, – a combination of things? Is it something that is entirely unreal or is it just something real that is exaggerated in size? Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's a an evil creature that works destruction upon the earth and marches against God and king, I'd say that's probably a monster. Yeah. Or people. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like we're, we're actually already too late because we're muddling around in recorded history and you can go much deeper. So in August of 1939... 
a group of archaeologists were doing field work at a Stone Age cave site in southern Germany, and the cave was called Stadelhol, which means stable cave, and it was at Hollenstein near Vogelherd. At this cave site, the researchers uncovered this massive collection of ivory fragments, uh, broken pieces made from the tusks, tusks of a Pleistocene mammoth. Now, it's Ice Age mammoth of Europe, woolly mammoth. Unfortunately, something happened just a matter of days after this initial discovery. World War II broke out. Mm. Not a great time to be digging in southern Germany. And so the dig had to be quickly abandoned and the dig was filled in and the broken pieces of the mammoth ivory were laid in storage for decades. And then about 30 years later, a German archaeologist named Joachim Hahn started trying to fit the ivory shards together, playing this you know, if you've ever seen these games, the 3D jigsaw puzzle game of artifact reconstruction, mm-hmm. it looks like a nightmare <laughs> of trying to see how all these things – because obviously some pieces are mid- missing. It's like trying to do a jigsaw puzzle with ha- half the puzzle. Uh, and so he had a, more than 200 fragments and he discovered that the pieces of ivory were originally part of the same Paleolithic figurine. It was a statuette about 31 centimeters long, which is just over a foot. And it was carbon-14 dated to somewhere between 35 and 40,000 years old. And once the pieces were put together, it became clear that you could still make out representative features, features that appeared to be both human and non-human. And this is the the central image I want to talk about in today's episode. This is the figure that would come to be known as the Lohenmensch, which is German for the Lion Man. And if you want to see a, an image of the Lohenmensch, we will have a picture of it on the landing page of this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. It uh, – it's it's rather regal looking. Yeah, well, I would say it's regal. Like it's it's got this upright posture, and it does look very stately. Mm-hmm. But also, in the spirit of the grim leopard of Assyria, it's kind of grim. It's got huh? this kind of it, it, there is no pity in the lion man's face. Nope, no pity. I just looked in closer at it, and <laughs> I don't see I don't see a shred of pity. Like uh, it would pass your sentence and and not not heed your tears. Yeah. So after this original reconstruction, in the following decades, there was this long multi-stage process that led to the the final reconstruction of the artifact in fuller and fuller detail. So in the 1980s, there was a paleontologist named Elizabeth Schmidt who added more pieces from additional re-excavations of the site and she corrected some errors in previous reconstructions and the clear impression of this feline head began to emerge. And then in the 2000s, another archaeologist named Klaus-Joachim Kind returned to the Stadel Cave to uncover more original pieces. And it, it led to this amazing version of the artifact that you can go see today. I think it's usually at the Ulm Museum in Germany, but I believe it is currently on loan at the British Museum. In fact, I believe it was the British Museum tweeting about the acquisition that uh, – or acquisition, the, <laughs> the loan that made mm-hmm. me think about doing this episode. So the Lion Man, he, he stands like a human in this two-footed bipedal posture, back straight with human arms draped down to the side, human torso, maybe lionish kinds of legs, but this proud menacing head of a big cat. And you've got to wonder, so this is thirty-five to 40,000 years ago. This is long before recorded history. Nobody was writing down what they were thinking. There apparently was no written language. So what did this figure mean to the Stone Age people who made it? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, we can only we can only guess. We can certainly look to more 
to increasingly more complex ideals that came afterwards. But you look at it and you think, well, is this a, is this a deity? Is this a punishing creature? Is this a – I've seen the, the, the term um, master of animals thrown around oh, uh, yeah. in interpreting similar alleged figures from cave paintings and, uh, and other uh, you know, ancient remains. Yeah, there is a sort of intuitive sense in which you could see an ancient person seeing an apex predator like a lion or any, any kind of big cat as some sort of god of the wilderness mm-hmm. uh, that would have power over other animals because it is at the top of the food chain. But it's a serious question to imagine why people would make this artifact because making an artifact like this would have been a, an extreme sacrifice. Uh, these would have been people, I think, very likely living not always very far from the edge of starvation. Uh, and an artifact like this took resources. It took time. It took energy. It wore down your sharp flint tools in the carving process. In fact, there was a in, in recent years there was an experiment by a guy named Wolf Hein that I watched a video of online. And he, this guy specializes in replicating ancient artifacts using the methods and tools that would have been available to the people who made them. Mm-hmm. And his reconstruction of the Lowenminch uh, using these flint carving t- tools, he says it took more than 370 hours. And in this video, if you sit and watch it, like the unbelievable laboriousness of the project begins to sink in. You just watch him going over and over mm-hmm. this ivory tusk with this piece of flint. And when you look at the guy's hands, I started to feel how working this flint rock over the ivory for hours and hours would just turn your fingers into hot ground beef. Just terrible. Yeah, and, and to your point, these were people that lived on the edge. They they were they were wanderers. They 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 had not reached the point in uh, the ascension of human civilization where you had specialists who could set aside time to create something like this. Uh, And and if they created something like this, it obviously wasn't going to be just a toy for a child to play with. It was something important. Right. And there are signs in the artifact itself that seem to signify that it had cultural importance, right? Yeah. The the surface of the original artifact seems to have been smoothed from excessive handling as if it were passed around in a ritual, for instance. Right. So, yeah. So, it looks like this is something that was handled a lot. It's got that worn down feeling to it. Um, and this is one reason that the Lowenminch is often cited as perhaps the earliest evidence that exists of religious beliefs. Now, who would the people that made this artifact have been? Well, it was almost certainly modern humans living in the area at the time. But but it's also worth noting that modern humans and Neanderthals um, – lived in this area at the, at the same time. They coexisted. Uh-huh. And uh, I did find a quote from uh, Jeffrey uh, Brantingham, an archaeologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. And he says that he doesn't think it's far-fetched to think that uh, Neanderthals uh, you know, could have made similar items. But for the most part, everyone is, seems to be on board with the idea that these were modern homo sapiens yeah. that created these artifacts. Anatomically modern. Yes. Except not quite so hunched over from watching YouTube all day. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, but there may be reasons to think that other members of this this ancient culture or this you know ancient – what would you call it? Sort of a loose idea of a culture if it was mostly small bands of people mm-hmm. uh, rather than cities or nations – but that whatever the people of this time period were made artifacts like this in general because this isn't the only one, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, in 2003, another lion was discovered in southwestern Germany or what is now southwestern Germany. And this one was carbon dated to around the same time period. 
So by, by, by some estimates, it kind of depends who's doing the math and who's uh, you know, doing the figuring, but by some estimates, these are the oldest statues and the oldest examples of figurative art. Uh, however, we do have uh, the Venus of uh, Whole Fells, and, uh, and by some estimates, this takes the title, uh, but the estimates here are like 35,000 to 40,000 years ago, so we're kind of placing it in, in yeah. basically the same time period. Uh -huh. There were just discoveries, key discoveries made in 2008 and 2016. If you've, if you've looked at a lot of like really ancient uh, uh, human artifacts, you've probably seen images of these. Uh, the, the Venus images are essentially a, a feminine figure, mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, kind of... Uh, Kind of a round feminine figure with without a head or 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 very little detail provided outside of like breasts and belly. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's often seen as having the uh, the what were perceived as the feminine figures exaggerated. So mm -hmm. it would be enlarged breasts, enlarged hips, and stuff like that. And for that reason, people often look at this and say they they think it had some kind of fertility significance. Right. Now, you know, depending – you can go back and forth over which one could be older than the other. It seems like they likely existed at the same time. But the key difference here is that while the Venus is a depiction essentially of the feminine form, of something that exists – Of the, a human being, yeah. Right. Uh, that exists in the real world, uh, the Lohenmensch is the human fused with the beast. Yeah. And in the, the words of Clive Gamble, an archaeologist at the University of Southampton, UK, as quoted in Nature – Quote, they depict the animal world in a semi-realistic way. It shows early man moving from his immediate world to an imaginative world. Now, this is interesting because, yeah, you have to imagine that – I don't know. There's no way to get inside, say, a, a chimpanzee's head or a dog's head or some other mammal. Mm -hmm. But if these animals have any kind of imaginative capacity, and there's no proof really, I guess, that they have any kind of ability to picture objects that are not in front of them. If they do, you kind of have to assume that they're sort of literal, right? Mm -hmm. That they'd be that they would be putting together ideas of images that are from their direct experience. Yeah, I mean, so in this case, I mean, one example that comes to mind, one possible, perhaps nitpicking. Uh, idea is that what if, say, Thag, the member of your tribe, what mm -hmm. if Thag likes to take a a deer head or a or a, a big cat head, and he likes to just kind of hollow that sucker out or, or get the skin and then just put it over his own head. Right. And he's famous for this, and he's so famous for this that one decides to create a statue of it. Like, that's the only scenario, I think, in which you could you could make the argument. I don't see anybody making that argument, but I feel like that's the only example where you can make an argument for this being an image of a thing that was as opposed to an image of a thing that was not. Let me throw a twist on your example, though. Okay. So maybe Thag does put on the, the headdress or you know, the, the remains of some other predator and to simulate that. In that sense, would Thag not be becoming another kind of creature, at least in symbol? That's true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can certainly make the argument that, that if Thag did that and bothered to put the uh, the beast's uh, skin over his head, mm -hmm. that it, you know he is pretending to be something else or or participating in an experience that makes him feel as if he is something else. So yeah, it, it all kind of amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? Right. So whether it's Thag inspiring this this lion man carving or whoever carved it depicting some kind of being that they had never seen in nature, what's going on is a kind of fusion into unreal creatures 
And according to Jill Cook, a curator at the British Museum uh, who has a good blog post about the Lowenmensch for the British Museum's acquisition, the Lowenmensch is the oldest known representation of a creature that does not exist in nature. Not necessarily the oldest piece of art, but the oldest evidence of fantasy, quite literally the world's oldest monster. Huh. Now, by monster, of course, we've got to clarify the way we use the term. I, I mean an imaginary creature that does not occur in nature, not necessarily a bad or evil creature. So this isn't to say that the people who imagined the Lowenmensch necessarily would have thought of it as antagonistic, though I feel pretty strongly that even if whatever this being was was treated with reverence, I suspect it would have been the kind of awe in the classic sense of awe, not like, oh, here's my friend, the Lion Man, but mm -hmm. like a solemn blend of wonder and fear. Well, if you try and imagine what life was like um, at the time, I mean, every, every day would have a certain amount of uncertainty. Uh, you're, you're depending upon your ability to find the food, to follow the patterns that lead to food, to to hunt prey that will feed and, and clothe you through the, the, the harsh winter months especially. So there's a certain amount of uncertainty. There's a certain amount of chaos. And therefore, we, you, know, you might expect to find those elements in imagined beings. Yeah, I can see that. So let's look at the ingredients of this imagined being. Obviously, it is one part human. We know about the, the upright bipedal human pretty well. But what is the head of this creature and possibly the inspiration for the, the muscly legs? Yeah, this is, this is a great question because I imagine a lot of people are thinking, OK, southern Germany, lions. Right. Well, lions are in Africa and, and or India. So what are they doing in Europe? Yeah. Well, given the time frame and the location, experts believe that we're, we're seeing a, a human or humanoid body with the, with the head of a now extinct cave lion. Cave lion. Yeah. Now, I, I think that's, that's interesting, isn't it, though? Because you have a partial likeness of one extinct animal in the very tusk of another. Right. Created, the woolly mammoth ivory. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's created by a species that probably played a role in the extinction of both species. <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought about yeah. that. That is uh, creepy. Yeah, there's, there's actually – there's not a lot of evidence for lion hunting, but a 2016 Spanish study published in PLOS-1, they looked at fossilized cave lion uh, toe bones and they found human modifications possibly made with stone tools that were made for skinning. So they think that, uh, that ancient peoples might have hunted them for their pelts. Oh, but of course we know even if they didn't directly hunt these lions, they could have contributed to their extinction by encroaching on their habitat, yes. by competition for large fauna and food sources. Sources. Oh, yeah. Now, there were different varieties of cave lion. Uh, one was found in America and there were two in Eurasia. Uh, there was uh, Panthera leofossilis and this, was first, this one first appeared in Europe 700,000 years ago and evolved into uh, Panthera leospelia. And this cave lion is the one that uh, continued on. That's the one we're seeing here and this is the one that went on to go extinct probably by 14 thousand years ago. But the, so 35 to 40,000 years ago when this thing was made, they were still around. Yes. Now, I've also read, I don't know how much stock we can put in this, but I've also uh, read in the past that some people think it may have survived in the Balkans up to 2,000 years ago. But again, I don't know to what extent we should buy into that. That may get into cryptid territory. The grim leopard of the Balkans. Yeah. But uh, to be clear, uh, Panthera leo spelia was probably the largest cat that ever lived. It was probably 25% larger than modern lions and also bigger than today's largest tigers. So we're talking up to 11 feet 6 inches or 3.5 meters in length. That is a crazy thing because 
something you might not have experienced if you haven't been to a zoo recently. I notice that I don't really have a correct vision in my head of how large the big cats are, mm-hmm. like a lion or a tiger. I think of them as, I don't know, like maybe lar- the size of a Great Dane or a little bit larger. <laughs> I, really. Yeah. But if, if you go to a, to a zoo and you get like right up against the glass where these things are, you realize like, oh, oh, man, this is like as big as a horse. Yeah. These things are gigantic. Well, they, they, they're – I mean, they're smaller than a horse, but but <laughs> it, it seems like a horse. But it does seem that big if you're in the right position to observe them. For instance, yeah. here at Zoo Atlanta, I go to the zoo a lot with my son, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes we get there early. And when you get there early, sometimes you're the only person close to the lion enclosure, yeah. and they're still kind of active because it's the morning. And I've had some really creepy experiences walking up there with my, you know, small snack size child next right. to me. Delicious. Yeah, and the, the the way the lion looks at you, you just feel this this primal feeling, and you get a sense of what this this beast is and how I'm supposed to view this beast outside of the artificial confines of the zoo environment. Isn't it funny that we've got spider fear, but we don't have lion fear? Well, it, it might be very different if you live mm-hmm. in proximity to lions, but I feel no natural fear about lions in the same way I do when I see the image of like a spider crawling toward my face. Well, I usually don't, but I feel like in these moments, yeah. I'm willing to buy that there's something there. Like the, like there's something situationally and environmentally that has to be in place. And such as, so standing you know, beside a small child in, in a situation where the lion's attention is on me, mm-hmm. it – it's very creepy, and yeah. I can I can buy into an idea that that there's something ingrained in me to to, to fear them. It, it is terrifying itself to fear the predatory gaze, like mm-hmm. when you when you just see the eyes of the creature that's large enough to eat you and maybe wants to. Yeah, uh, that comes through a lot in one of our favorite books to talk about in here in Blind Sight uh, mm-hmm. by Peter Watts, where he talks about the vampire's gaze. Uh, you know, they usually keep their eyes covered because people like they wear these sunglasses because if they don't, people can just constantly feel themselves being looked at as prey. So it's it's easy for I mean it's it's relatively easy for us to lock eyes with a predator like the lion if you go to zoos and, and whatnot. But but try to imagine living in this ancient time, like mm-hmm. the rare situations where you would make eye contact with this creature and live to tell about it, and how powerful that would be. Like that that would have to play a role in the creation of uh, of this lion man. You can imagine it was a religious experience. Yeah, like if you came face to face with a cave lion and did not die, that this would make you feel like you had entered a higher plane of existence. You had communed with some with the grim leopard of the skies. Yeah. Now, of course, it's worth noting that this this may have been we, this may well have been the first lion man lion humanoid hybrid in, uh, in in human beliefs, uh, but we would go on to have many more. Oh, of course. Some of the some of the key examples the Egyptians had several, uh, or at least four: uh, Mahis, Paquette, uh, Sekhmet, and Tefnut. And then in Hinduism, you have Narasimha, which uh, literally means man lion in Sanskrit. I've seen people online commenting that they believe that the Lohenmensch is an is a depiction of Narasimha. Huh. Well, I mean, it's it's essentially the, like visually the same idea. It is a it is a humanoid with a lion's head. Yeah. And this is a in Hinduism, it's an avatar of Vishnu, and it's often seen. It's often depicted uh, slaying the demon uh, Harun Yak. Ashipu, 
and it's always a, a grisly scene in which the, uh, the 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 lion avatar with its multiple arms is uh, eviscerating, like ripping uh, this uh, this humanoid uh, demon apart uh, uh, at the stomach. I'm looking at an image right now. It is it is rough. Yeah, entrails flailing, and you know their entrails wrapped around uh, the god's head. It's uh, it's it's wonderful. Now the vision of the lion headed man in the Lowenmensch is, as we said, is kind of stately. It's kind of serene. It's mm-hmm. kind of pitiless, but it's not doing anything overtly threatening. Right. It's more like that that distant predatory gaze that makes you uneasy. This depiction is roaring. It's yeah. got the teeth bared. It's ready to bite you in half. Now, there are, of course, uh, creatures in, uh, in myth and, uh, and, and legend that are the reverse of the lion man. Oh, yeah. How about the sphinx, right? Yeah. It's the exact opposite body of a lion with the head of a human. Yeah. And you have a, you also have similar scenarios with, of course, the manticore, the chimera, and some depictions of, of dragons are, are essentially lion-headed entities. Now, another creature that came up uh, for me in my research, and this is one I didn't, I didn't know much about, and luckily this is one that actually nobody knows a whole lot about. Right. It's still rather enigmatic, but the uh, Leontocephaline, a creature of Mithraism, which is a, a, a mystery religion centered around the god Mithras in the Roman Empire from around the first to the fourth centuries uh, CE. Mithraism is great because it's got all these intriguing artifacts and artistic descriptions, but people or not descriptions, uh, depictions from mm-hmm. the ancient world, but we don't know that much about it where there's a lot of mystery about what the content of this religion was. Yeah, and this is a great example of it because you have a naked man with a lion's head. Uh, he's winged, has like four wings it looks like. There's a serpent entwined around him much like a caduceus. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's and oh, oh, also the lion's head seems like it might be screaming or crying aloud in anguish. It's, it's, and there are additional cryptic details in the image as well, but uh, it's very poorly understood. Well, whatever it's, it's a lot of its secrets have uh, have been lost to time. Can you imagine if that happened to existing religions today? So, like, imagine you are an archaeologist of the mm-hmm. future and you're digging through our artifacts of the 20th century and you can find some religious art, or some religious art, I guess, and some various depictions and descriptions of what's going on in, say, Catholicism or modern Hinduism or something like that. But you're mostly unable to discern what the, like, textual contents of the religion were. Hmm. Wouldn't that be fascinating, like, trying to piece it together? Yeah, yeah. I mean – you could pro- there are probably various examples of just fashion shoots and, and popular imagery from today. And if you didn't know what the various icons were, I mean, how would you figure it out? What's this hand sign that Jay Z is making in this image? What does it mean? You know, it must have some kind of religious significance, I guess. Now, speaking of uh, now, earlier you mentioned what happens when Thag puts on the the like lion head on top of his head, mm-hmm. and does that represent itself as some kind of alternate creature, or are we just looking at Thag wearing his clothes? There is some debate about whether other ancient depictions of hybrid creatures are in fact hybrids, or whether we're looking at somebody wearing an animal garment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like this, what instantly comes to mind is uh, is something that is at times referred to as the horned god, which of course I like, uh-huh. uh, but also known as the sorcerer. Nice. So uh, this one is from uh, the sorcerer. The most famous uh, sorcerer here is uh, from a cavern known as the sanctuary. 
And uh, this is from a, a cave in France, the cave of Troy Frères Ariège. And this is from around uh, estimates uh, 13,000 BCE. Okay. Now, the cave itself was discovered, was discovered in 1914. So it's, it's interesting how a lot of these discoveries are occurring in the early part of the 20th century. And the cave was found to feature mostly cave art of animals, but also a couple of um, of these half-human, half-animal figures. Uh-huh. And the dominant figure is this small humanoid, again, that is known as the horned god or the sorcerer. And it's this humanoid figure, loosely, with uh, with with the head of, a, of an animal. It looks like with, with antlers. Yeah. With the head of a, a stag or an elk or something uh, like that. Robert Baratheon. Yeah. And, uh, and the interpretations vary. Sometimes, again, there's this masters of animal argument or that it's a divine figure. Uh, priest and archaeologist uh, Henry uh, Bruel uh, drew in a sketch of the figure. And I have to say it looks a little bit more elaborate than the the actual photographs. Yeah. Uh, so I think sometimes, you know, it, a lot of it falls to interpretation. You know, how do you make sense of this image? And I've also read some some criticism of of interpretations of the sorcerer, saying that look, what we could be looking at here is just just or is, is just the result of overlaps between depicted forms, or cases where one image was painted over by another. Okay. Now. That being said, you can you can make those kind of criticisms regarding some of these cave paintings. But the Lion Man is most definitely a Lion Man. Right. <laughs> there's yeah. no room for like, oh, goodness, I, I went to just carve this uh, image to painstakingly spend 400 hours making this image of uh, a, a fag here. And then I accidentally gave him a lion's head. It's just <laughs> it's not going to happen. Right. Uh, so – when I was reading about this whole thing the other day uh, about the Lowen Minch, I thought, okay, he might be the oldest known evidence of a monster on Earth. But it's probably not the first monster that ever existed in somebody's imagination. And then it hit me. At some point in time, there had to be a first monster. There had to be the first time a human or maybe some other previous animal, a human ancestor, was able to form a mental picture of a horrifying creature that was not just some known predator or even some known predator made a little bit bigger, mm-hmm. but an unholy being that did not exist in nature, you know, the claws of a crab on the body of a lion or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a there's a cognitive step involved here. There's, yeah. This is, there's a, a cognitive first step that is that you, you can't just gloss over, you know, because even, you know, if you were to drag in, say, the, you know, the content of the, the bicameral mind episodes that we did. Okay. You know, even in that case where you have, have you know, something drastically different taking place with the human mind, uh-huh. it would still need to draw that image from somewhere, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. It would have to get put together somehow. Yeah. So it, at some point, the bicameral mind would have to stop. Suddenly, it's not just speaking through humans or animals, but it is speaking through a human-animal hybrid. And what is causing that? Where does that come from? As much as I love it, we, we can't keep coming back to the bicameral mind because people are going to start to think yeah, they believe gonna, in it. Yeah, they are. But, uh, but I know people's, people, listeners' minds are going there. So I had, to, I had to dip in for a second. Well, I appreciate you doing that, Robert. But I still hold out my skepticism <laughs> on, on the bicameral mind. But uh, yeah, so I want to come back to this question for the rest of today's episode. Are there any clues about where this first monster came from? Obviously, it's lost to prehistory. We can't mm-hmm. know when that happened and what the monster consisted of. But we might be able to look at 
or at least suppose some things about human monster creation, monster fear that would give us ideas about the circumstances in which this monster might have arisen. And I guess we'll start on that journey when we come back from a break. All right, we're back. So, Robert, what is a monster? Well, you know, I love this question because the, the answers tend to vary depending on, on who's thinking hard about monsters. Yeah, give me Jessup's answer first. <laughs> no, no. I, I, and Jessup has a more literal uh, uh, interpretation of these things. But uh, one example that I love is the, the idea that the word monstrosity originates from the Latin uh, monstrare which means uh, to show or illustrate a point. This is a good point. I mean, very often if you think about monster legends, they come with a moral, don't they? Yeah, or there's some idea wrapped up in it. Like, I'm afraid of this, but why? This thing exists, but why? And and it can vary, you know, it can involve various symbolism. It can involve just very simple metaphorical uh, uh, extrapolations. But, yeah, very often there is a message, there's an idea there. And, uh, you know, I think this falls in line with uh, what St. Augustine had to say about monsters. He said their monster is part of God's plan, an adornment of the universe that can also teach us about the dangers of sin. Yeah. But other medieval commentators also, they just define a monster as a thing that's against nature. Now, for people who believe that nature was thoroughly populated with monsters— (laughs) <laughs> what gave them the – like what made the distinction, right? It's against nature but nature's full of them. <laughs> Where did that come from? Well, I mean the other thing of course is that even – how can it be – if it's, it's if it's against nature but it's also – it's made of nature. I mean yeah. that's one of the whole things we've been hitting so far is it's a cave lion plus a man. It's a combination of things that exist. So it's not just yeah. whole cloth, uh, you know, because, I mean, virtually no monster out there is completely removed from our biological world. Right. Most of them have some analog in in the natural world, and there's there's something to be said there about our connection with nature. I, I mean, mean, even when people try to come up with monsters from the outer dark, some kind of, you know, the the – cosmic kind of monsters, there's still, it's like, well, it's a human with a squid head and it's really big. Yeah. Or you're just struggling to come up with something that doesn't have an analogy in nature. Right. Or if you think you've created something that has no analogy in nature, you're just recreating like a Cambrian era uh, organism that you just didn't know about. Hey, if you haven't listened to our Cambrian monsters episode, you should go back to the, to, I guess it was last week or whenever this airs, check out the Cambrian monster mash. Those were some monsters. There were some monsters. Now, speaking of of monsters, particularly sea monsters, 13th century theologian Thomas of Cantemporary, he devoted an entire book to sea monsters and another to the fish of the sea. So his dividing line here, but, you know, what goes in which book? Oh, you're, this is answering my question, right? Yeah. If nature is full of monsters, what, how can you tell what the monsters are? Yeah, yeah. His answer would be, well, it all comes down to rarity and size. That's, what's <laughs> ma- that's what makes a sea monster. Um, so, uh, so like blue whales would be sea monsters. Yeah, because they're just so big. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's quite literally monstrous. And it's, it's essentially rare. Especially, I guess, if it's, yeah, if it's like an apex predator. So, like a megalodon would have been a sea monster. They didn't exist at the time. Right. Or, you know, or say a horse is a rather large creature, but it's not a rarity. So, you know, it's not a monster. Mm. But if you had a dog the size of a horse, that would be a rarity. That would be a monster. Okay. I feel like this is a really 
dumb and unimaginative dividing line. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's good at all. No, it doesn't really help us out here. Uh, but you know, regardless of how you define monsters, we of course have countless monsters. And, and not just, of course, the ones that we've dreamt up to you know, recently to entertain us. Though I think that in many cases we're we're not simply entertaining ourselves with monsters. We are we are creating something that speaks to uh, to deeper fears, uh, that speaks to you know some level of anxiety about our lives or the modern world. And then of course religion and myth and legend, folklore are just just totally populated with creatures that are that are hybrids of various forms. Uh, yeah, I, I like what you said there. I, I think I've said this on the show before, but one reason – sometimes people ask me like, what, what do you like about horror movies? I mean, they're so dumb. It's true that the horror genre has a lot of really, really bad movies in it. But I think horror movies are interesting because even when they're bad, they sort of show you something. Yeah. They are instructive about the anxieties of the age in which they're produced. And they, they, they tap into something primal about what our, what our deepest fears are, what's occupy, occupying our minds when we're in the dark alone. And I like that about them. Mm-hmm. I, I like even when they're not good stories and they're not told well. They're still instructive about the society and the people that made them. Well, a lot of it comes down to symbols, right? If you can have somebody who has no clue what they're doing, and if you're taking existing symbols and you're combining them one way or another, you're going to inevitably make a statement. You may be completely deaf to that statement, uh, completely blind to that statement, but... That's often when it's the most interesting. Yeah, like, oh my goodness, you accidentally created something brilliant. Uh, like you made that the killer's mask and you, you didn't even think about all of the, uh, the ramifications of, uh, of that symbol. Yeah. What does it mean that the killer wears a hockey mask? Yeah, or a baby mask or, a, or a, you know, an obviously store-bought uh, ghost face mask. I mean, you can, you can kind of go wild with any of these, these examples and, uh, and, and try and tease out a big academic paper on what the, what the meaning of the film is. Obviously, it's that hockey will kill us all in the end. (laughs) Fear of Canadians, I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, to keep chasing this question about where the first monster might have come from, I I think maybe we should take a detour and look at this one paper that I found that I I thought was really interesting. It doesn't directly answer the question we're talking about, but it comes really close. It Mm -hmm. goes along similar pathways of thinking. And it's a paper by a scholar called Stephen T. Asma, and the paper is titled Monsters on the Brain, an Evolutionary Epistemology of Horror. Published in Social Research and International Quarterly, and that's a social science journal that has a lot of different uh, social science genres in it. And basically what Asma is trying to do in this article is trace what the biological origins of the experience of horror are. And I think if we look at that, that might provide some insights about where monsters could emerge in our anthropological history. And asthma starts with an interesting question, one that's very common with all kinds of studies about behavior. Are fear responses modular or conditioned? In other words, are our fear responses and our monster fears instinctual, born into us, or are they just learned and conditioned by culture and experience? And just to rephrase from the beginning, I think one thing we can eliminate is that it's quite obvious that at least some of our fears are conditioned or learned. Like there is no way you were born with a fear of airplanes. Right. Uh, that's not part of your evolutionary heritage. So though you 
you might have, you know, you might have an inborn fear of heights. You could see how yes, that could yes. be part of evolutionary heritage. But not like silver machines filled with other humans uh, right. barreling through the sky. Right. So there might be instinctual elements that go into that fear. But the fear itself, the content there is clearly conditioned or learned. But the real question is, are any of our fears modular or instinctual or the, are they all conditioned or learned? So asthma kicks off this paper by, by pretty much stating the obvious. Fear exists in our bodies and minds. Yeah. Fearful stimuli stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. So perhaps you'll freeze in the face of fear. Maybe you'll flee. Maybe you'll, you'll suddenly have this burst of bravery and you'll turn around and fight. But the object of terror gives us a physical jolt and it demands reaction. And he also points out that there's a strong hormonal component entailing the corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH, cortisol, and adrenaline. Yeah. Asthma points to a study, in fact, in which scientists inserted a gene in mice that makes CRH, resulting in more fearful mice, or removing it to make, quote, an extremely fearless mouse. I would, I would venture to say that both prospects are horrifying. <laughs> So asthma argues that these are all old brain systems. So this is the the basement of horror. And we advanced organisms, we have an entire haunted house built atop these ancient brainstem ruins. Okay, I like this analogy you're going with. Yeah, you have all the, the limbic emotional circuits here. You can think of this neural mammalian haunted house containing seven key rooms. You got your fear room, your care room, your lust room, your rage room, your panic room, your, uh, your seeking room, and your play room. And each room commands specific neural pathways through the brain, pipes wriggling around and diving down. Down into the haunted ruins beneath. So we'd be saying that when you have these different types of affective reactions, say like you're engaged in play behaviors or you're engaged in lust behaviors or fear behaviors, they don't look the same in the brain. They take mm-hmm. different avenues through your different brain regions and excite different types of tissue. Right. Now, mammalian fear is rooted in the amygdala. And we can talk about some direct evidence of this later, but this is a, a pretty well-evidenced proposition. Right. And we can think of this as like a haunted laboratory. <laughs> uh, and it's probably right next to the memory-laden haunted library of the hippocampus. And they work together to enable conditioned learning. Right. So the amygdala is what regulates fear and the hippocampus supplies the information content of the fear. Uh, and, th- and this is conditioned learning. So the simple version is, let's say uh, somebody puts you in a lab and they keep showing you episodes of TV shows. And every time they show you an episode of Seinfeld, you get an electric shock. <laughs> and it goes for the duration of the episode. You will probably develop a conditioned Seinfeld phobia, mm-hmm. which is an avoidance or a version reaction to Jerry Seinfeld's face. And this is this is a standard accounting of how conditioned fears are developed. All right. So we, we have our haunted house here. What's a haunted house without a few ghosts? Okay. And the ghosts come to us via evolution. This is what asthma refers to as the heritable dispositional levels of fear or timidity. Now, refer back to what you mentioned a minute ago, which is those mice, right? You can mm-hmm. you can inherit different levels of fear disposition. So you can have these really brave mice that you artificially select for or these really scared mice that you artificially select for. But also, could the contents of our fears be heritable? That's sort of part of the question we're asking, not just how likely you are to become afraid, but what you're afraid of. Can you get that from your parents through your genes? Ah, well, there's some there's some interesting supporting evidence for this. And I imagine a, a number of you have encountered videos online of cats reacting to cucumbers. 
you know, they turn around, they see a cucumber, they freak out. The idea is that they have this this uh, this ingrained response to something that is snake-like. And there have been experiments to show similar reactions in chimps as well. Uh, we also see this uh, along with spider fears in humans. Yeah, one example showing this was in the 1940s. The psychologist Donald Hebb found that even infant chimpanzees were terrified of images of snakes, even if they'd never been exposed to images of snakes before. Now, there's an interesting update to that, which is that Hebb found that chimps weren't just afraid of snakes, but of any, quote, and this is asthma's wording, extremely varied morphologies they encountered. So like really odd shapes that Mm -hmm. weren't part of their normal day-to-day life. Uh, But for more evidence of, of the brain's conditioning toward reaction to snakes, I found one recent study. It was about neural pathways for evolution of rapid detection of snakes, and it was by uh uh, Van Lee Kwan et al. And it's called Pulvinar Neurons Reveal Neurobiological Evidence of Past Selection for Rapid Detection of Snakes in PNAS uh, 2013. And basically it found that there are neurons in the primate medial and dorsolateral pulvinar that respond selectively to snakes, seeming to indicate that there's something hardwired in the primate brain to cause this rapid detection of snake-like shapes as opposed to images of other things like monkey faces, monkey hands, and geometric shapes. And so Asthma, uh, in his paper, he wonders, quote, if some of our deep-seated monster fears may be rooted in real predators or environmental threats from our prehistory. So we're talking about cognitive models shaped in the uh, Pleistocene era, genetically engraved archetypes that continue to resonate uh, you know, on up into modern times. Now, you can totally see why that would be the case, right? It's clear that some types of fears could be adaptive. Uh, if you are born with a natural fear of lion-shaped things, you're probably going to survive more often than people not born with a fear of lion-shaped things, right? Yes. And so the question is, is the image of a snake or a spider or anything that conforms to a, to a common part of monster imagery somehow encoded deeply in your biology? Is it an inherited fear response that you get from threats faced by your ancestors? Uh, or are these all things we learn to fear from culture and experience. So Asma cites some lines of thinking against heritable fear content. Like one thing he asks is, how does the content itself get transmitted? You know, like if you're Mm -hmm. afraid of snakes, how could that image of a snake literally come down through the generations? Now, I'm not sure I buy that objection so much because – I I do think it seems likely that we can inherit some types of imagery recognition. I mean, here's one example. If you can't inherit any kind of imagery recognition from your parents, how would animals know what visual cues to look for in mating? Yeah. You could say with humans, you could say, well, maybe it's all culturally conditioned and that's how. But what about non-human animals? What about non-social non-human animals? There yeah. seem to be – I would think that you can transmit some types of imagery across generations through heritable predispositions. And of course, it's important to wonder what kind of content is actually getting transmitted here. Yeah, and that's one – objection that asthma doesn't really uh, go into as deeply, but I, I think actually does matter. Why snakes and spiders? Like, I can think of animals that are generally much, much more dangerous and probably much more dangerous to our direct uh, ancestors on the African savanna 
than spiders and snakes, Mm -hmm. and yet they don't inspire nearly the same visual revulsion. Like a hippopotamus is 10,000 times more dangerous than the average snake or spider, and yet it does not present as a universal phobia. You don't see humans all over the world being terrified of hippopotami. Yeah, so or at least certainly not outside of direct contact with them, like environmental contact with them. Yeah, unless you've like learned to be afraid of them because they're actually dangerous. Otherwise, I think we all have that point growing up where we're told, oh, actually, hippos are exceedingly dangerous and they're more dangerous than the crocodiles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as always, take that with the caveat that we don't want to demonize animals. No, no. So hippos are wonderful. Right. Don't go killing hippos. Or I can't anything. watch enough hippo videos online. <laughs> of their, uh, of what, of their, their viral explosive defecations? No. Well, that, I think that's a fabulous topic as well. There's a lot to that, actually. Um, I, I've read papers about the way that they, they spin their tails to distribute the fecal matter yeah, uh, and the different theories as to why. I mean, it gets into parasites and leeches. It's, it's fabulous stuff. But their babies are super cute. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. You ever watch the oh, baby, baby hippos, hippos awesome. swimming with their, their, their moms? It's I mean, amazing. Yeah, they'll grow up to bite your legs off, but they're, <laughs> but they're very cute as babies. But yeah, no demonization of hippos. Don't go killing hippos or anything. Anyway, but, but back to asthma. Okay, so we do have these potential pitfalls in the idea that our fears, uh, our predatory fears are inherited directly and biologically from our parents. But Asma thinks he sort of has a solution to this dilemma, right? Yeah, he gets into this topic of specific versus generic pattern recognition systems. Okay. So he points to the universality of uh, snake and spider phobias, as we've been discussing, but also to studies by ethologist Wolfgang Schleit who uh, he carried out these experiments where he took bird chicks and he exposed them to flyover silhouettes of both hawks and geese. geese. Mm -hmm. The hawk caused fear, but seemingly not the goose. But if they were exposed to repeated hawk flyover shapes uh, very earlier in the development, they feared the goose, but not the hawk. So it's, it's curious. So you basically it was about what they were exposed to early on. And by the way, I have to add the fact these were turkey chicks. <laughs> <laughs> your your butterballs were being experimented on a little bit in infancy. By the way, I love that idea of, of fearing the goose. I think we should we should incorporate that into our discussions of fear. If you have an unfounded fear, you can say, Oh, you were really fearing the goose on that one. So that's like when you're afraid of something that isn't really dangerous, but it's because you had a bad experience with it as a child. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, as we're discussing or, the development of fear, it's like that's kind of – that's how we work. That's how you survive in the wild. You, The person who fears the lion that is not there – that has a better chance of surviving than the person who does not fear the lions that may be there. It's true. You'd rather have false positives than false negatives. Yeah. Uh, I, I should correct myself there because fearing the goose wouldn't be that you had a bad experience with the goose. It'd be that you never had an experience with the goose. Yeah. And thus you're afraid of them because they don't, they don't fit into your, uh, your picture of the world. Maybe it's a good expression for like when your kid won't try some new food or something. It's like yeah. stop fearing the goose. Don't fear the goose. Just go for it. Baby, I'm Just your try man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should stop laughing at my own jokes. Okay. Uh, so Schleit's work uh, focused on replications of older experiments uh, originally carried out by Lorenz and Tinbergen in the 1930s. 
And to quote from Asthma, this is, quote, corroborating Hebb's idea. Remember Donald Hebb from earlier? Mm -hmm. Idea that some discrepancy between a new perception and previous background stored experiences causes the fearful response. Remember how the chimps were frightened by any unfamiliar morphology. Right. New shapes they weren't familiar with. Uh, so Asthma continues, quote, theoretically, one could condition an animal to be unresponsive to, to snakes and hawks, but utterly terrified of fluffy bunnies. <laughs> so this is Asthma's position. Um, he, he's sort of working toward this thing. I, well, let, let's let's get there on our own time. Yeah, he, he says that all of this makes sense, though, if you look at it in, in light of Darwin, right? He, he's talking about the generic conditioning idea. Right, yeah, because he talks about the, the, quote, fearful reaction to categorical mismatch. So as Asma puts it, quote, the local environment will condition the infant animal and then the cognitive development will lock in the categories, creating a software program that recognizes some animals and mismatches novelties. Hmm. So Asma is sort of proposing a hybrid model of the origins of fear imagery, not necessarily that it's that it's received imagery from your ancestors mm -hmm. and not necessarily that it's all learned in life, but it's one that combines elements that are automatic and instinctual along with elements that are modifiable and learned. Yeah, he calls it a, quote, content-free recognition system. And so the, the basis of this is that if it, whatever we are exposed to in early childhood – becomes part of our okay category and whatever we're not exposed to becomes part of the fear category. Exactly. And in fact, he points to a specific study. This is uh, the, the studies uh, uh, that were conducted by Mary Ainsworth in the 1970s, the strange situation experiments. Yeah. And uh, these, uh, these backed up the notion that there's a window of opportunity for template formation and it closes after six months. This is great. This is part of the freaking out your children genre yeah. of experiments. Everything is stored as normal in those first six months, the argument goes. And only after that are the new experiences initially stored as strange and novel and judged in light of existing templates. That's why if you encounter a, a, a child that is less than six months, they're looking at everything the same. You're not going to get those shifty uh, baby eyes and those shifty toddler eyes till later. You know, because we've all encountered those kids that like instantly distrust you. They they look at you and you can tell they distrust you. And you're like, what What are you doing? Yeah. I just got here. What are you basing this on? And they're basing it on the template that they have. You were not in that template. So this would seem to back up his idea of the, the fact that there's a sort of content-free recognition system. Uh, and it also would, would help answer this question of how come infants, if this is the case, don't become terrified of every new image they encounter? Right, right. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's worth noting, uh, Asthma, in all of this, he, he points out some of the obvious, that many of our monsters are hybrids of threatening creatures. And specifically, uh, he points out the alien face hugger, because this is essentially a spider and a snake fused together into one awful crab-like uh, entity, you right. know? It's the worst parts of the spider and the worst parts of a snake and the worst parts of uh, an oyster. Well, yeah, yeah, once you start cutting into it, for sure. But there's no worst part of an oyster. It's all good. <laughs> uh, so Asma says that this, uh, what we have here is uh, the phylogenetic memory of ancient danger. And monstrous hybrids allow us to, to further strengthen, augment, and transmit those fears. Right, and that would seem to go to this like instinctual fear read. But Asma has this other interesting uh, hypothesis he discusses about what uh, what contributes to what makes spiders and snakes specifically scary? And this might answer some of my problems with why them and not hippopotamuses. Uh, if you assume that babies are generally carried 
and kept off the ground outside for their first six months of life, they won't be seeing many spiders or snakes. But they will be able to see people and other larger non-threatening animals. So Asma seems to think this sort of fits the category violation model. That would make sense. Yeah, I I don't see a lot of of adults even today taking their baby. Well, I mean, unless you take them to the zoo, I guess. Yeah. But – even then, they're not. They're encountering them in the zoo, and we've already talked a little bit about the differences between encountering an animal in the wild and encountering them in an artificial environment. Right. Now, of course, another way to violate these categories is to present beings with totally nonsensical ontologies, creatures that could never be conditioned in a natural environment, or sorry, that you could never be conditioned to accept in a natural environment because they don't exist in a natural environment. Here may be the origin of our hybrid monsters, our lion-headed humans and the grim sentient leopards and other beasts. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will return to our discussion of uh, ancient monsters. All right. We're back. Now, Asma invokes a concept in his paper uh, invented by the philosopher Noel Carroll, which is called category jamming. And in his 2003 book, The Philosophy of Horror or Paradoxes of the Heart, Carroll makes a distinction between what he calls the monsters of myth and the monsters of horror. I thought this was pretty interesting. So he writes about how, you know, there might be fearsome creatures in the world of myths, but they are not, quote, unnatural and they can be accommodated by the metaphysics of the cosmology that produce them. All right. So this idea is that, say, the Medusa is if, – if you take the Medusa and you put it in our real world, yeah, it's breaking all these laws of, of physics and nature. Right. But the Medusa encountered within the world of Greek myth, well, then she's just part of this world. Like she's not breaking any laws. Exactly. But then he says, quote, the monsters of horror – breach the norms of ontological propriety presumed by the positive human characters in the story. That is, in examples of horror, it would appear that the monster is an extraordinary character in our ordinary world. Yeah. I like this because this is a distinction I feel very much. Like there are different kinds of monsters and even the same monster could be more or less terrifying given different context. And so it makes me think back to the Lowenminch. Which one was the Lowenminch? Huh. Was this a monster of myth that existed within some kind of epic poem that these people t- you know, recited orally or something like that? Something outside the world that could be accommodated by its own cosmology? Or was this the monster of horror, something that haunted the woods beyond the cave? Yeah, to, to glimpse this creature or to imagine glimpsing this creature, is it to see something broken in the world or something that is uh, just part of its fabric? And we have no way of knowing. Yeah, though clearly I think if it is part of that broken vision of the world, then there is a stronger fear element to it. Yes. It's not part of a fantasy. It is a fantastical deviation from your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. But Carroll also writes about this idea that monsters are jamming of categories. He says, quote, monsters are repelling because they violate standing categories. And another quote also elsewhere, um, quote, If what is of primary importance about horrific creatures is that their very impossibility vis-a-vis our conceptual categories is what makes them function so compellingly in dramas of discovery and confirmation, then their disclosure, insofar as they are categorical violations, will be attached to some sense of disturbance, distress, and disgust. 
Consequently, the role of the horrific creature in such narratives, where their disclosure captures our interest and delivers pleasure, will simultaneously mandate some probable revulsion. That is, in order to reward our interest by the disclosure of the putatively impossible beings of the plot, said beings ought to be disturbing, distressing, and repulsive in the way that theorists like Douglas, and there he's referring to Dame Mary Douglas, uh, predict phenomena that ill-fit cultural classifications will be. So the idea is that creatures that violate our culturally established categories of existence we will find repulsive and distressing. And this is definitely a very common way of explaining horrific creatures, right? The category confusion model. Yeah, there's a lion, there's a man, but a man with a lion's head, that just, that breaks all the rules. It's the thing that should not be. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, But then again, I I have, so on one hand, I'm attracted to this theory, and I find that lots of horror creatures very much seem to fit this theory. But at the same time, I wonder, is it really possible that our experience of monster horror could be so thoroughly cognitive because like comparing these categories like this established by culture that really would seem to be like it takes some kind of thought right Mm -hmm. Uh, do you really have to think about a monster to find it scary no i mean like we've been discussing with something like like jason say jason Voorhees from the friday the 13th series you don't have to think very hard in those films to find jason terrifying though there's there's plenty of stuff going on to make you feel terror, right down to the music and uh, and, uh, and and other forms of priming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you if you tease it apart, you can say yes, this is an unnatural thing. It's it, depending on your interpretation, it's either a dead person that's walking around killing people, right. or at the very least, it is uh, an unrealistically relentless and unstoppable uh, humanoid killer. Right. And it's equally terrifying no matter how much thought you put into it. Right. And that whenever I feel monster fear, the initial pang of monster fear definitely feels deeper than cognitive category analysis. Mm-hmm. Like I don't feel like I'm comparing anything in my mind. Uh, it, it hits me on the same level as like, you know, seeing something flying at my face. Right. Anyway, we'll come back to the cognitive elements in a minute. I wanted to discuss one other tangent that's really interesting that asthma goes on that might provide some kind of light on this. Uh, I loved his section about horror blindness. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think I'd ever read about this before. So here's how to get into it. A question that might help us understand the origin of monsters is why do we keep creating them? Like, why can't we stop making monsters even if they make us feel the putatively negative emotion of fear? Well, I think that they're kind of like cocktails, right? Yeah. Like there's a, there's a basic reason that humans consume alcohol and there's a basic reason humans consume various other uh, elements that have specific tastes. But we can't stop coming up with new combinations, uh, new novel combinations that will give us the same and then in, in increasingly varied experiences based on that original. We like to fear, and so we're going to continue to, to tweak what makes us feel that, that terror. But do well, – OK. So that's one theory. You mm-hmm. could say that we like to fear. Yes. I think there's another possibility, which is that we don't actually like to fear. We like something else that comes with fear, that fear has sort of a, a secret hidden cousin. Yeah. Whenever the fear pathways in the brain are ignited, there's something that happens along with that and that's the thing we like. And we mistake it for its cousin, the, the fear, the main emotion. So l- l- let's look at an, an example and see what we think. 
One way to study the biological roots of horror monster or of monster fear would be to look at the behavior of a person who's incapable of feeling that fear. And strangely enough, such a person does exist. Uh, Asma points to the case of this person known in the scientific literature only as SM, who is a woman with horror blindness. Huh. SM has a brain anomaly. She has focal bilateral amygdala lesions. And because the amygdala is so bound up, so important in generating the brain's fear response, these lesions mean that SM has an extreme fear deficiency, sometimes characterized as the complete inability to fear. And researchers have tested her with all kinds of fear-inducing stimuli like haunted houses, horror movies, snakes and spiders. And these experiments showed that for SM, what would normally be horrifying stimuli were indeed attention-grabbing but did not cause avoidance behaviors. In fact, they found that this combination of attentional arousal, the attention-grabbing nature of it, and the lack of fear response tended to manifest itself as something like an attraction. Hmm. So this study was uh, – there's one study by Justin S. Feinstein et al. called The Human Amygdala and the Induction uh, and the Induction and Experience of Fear in Current Biology in 2011. And what they – what the researchers did is they took SM to a haunted house put together at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, uh, which is an abandoned medical facility in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. And I want to read a quote about what happened when they went with SM through this facility, which had people dressed as monsters jumping out and scaring they said, quote, The hidden monster is attempted to scare SM numerous times, but to no avail. She reacted to the monsters by smiling, laughing, or trying to talk to them. In contrast, their scare tactics typically elicited loud screams of fright from the other members of the group. More than showing a lack of fear, SM exhibited an unusual inclination to approach and touch the monsters. Ironically, SM scared one of the monsters when she poked it in the head because she was, quote, curious as to what it would feel like. Oh, you're not supposed to touch the actors at a haunted attraction. SM should have known that. Well, apparently she didn't. Now, I thought this was really interesting because what they're saying is that in this condition where you don't have the normal avoidance behaviors because you've got a deficiency of fear, if your amygdala is damaged and you can't feel fear, things that would normally make you fear aren't just neutral. It's not like, oh, I don't care about that. You, you find yourself attracted to it. It's like you love it. Yeah. You want to touch it. Well, I mean, I totally buy into that because, I mean, there are plenty of examples, I think, uh, in our own lives where we see like a really cool monster design in a film or a book or some art. And, yeah, we're not thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm so afraid right now. We think, oh, man, that's pretty gnarly. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so I think that may be what's going on with fear. Now, I, I, I accept the, the opposite could be true. It could be true that in some way the fear itself is satisfying, is thrilling, is fun. Well, but and then, I, of course, the after effect of the monster not killing you, you get that, uh, that surge of relief yeah, as the, well. Yeah, the endorphin and mm -hmm. the adrenaline rush. Yeah, the, there's that hormonal element to it as well. But yeah, I do think that part of what the appeal must be is what's happening with SM here. It's that she's only getting the good half of the horror feeling. <laughs> she's not feeling the fear. But when we experience horror in the good way, in the pleasurable way that makes us keep returning to it, it's what's it, whatever's happening with her there except not tempered by, uh, by the normal kind of avoidance response we would have. Huh. So essentially what's being proposed is that, uh, is that fear and arousal are separate things but they're deeply linked. And 
in, in, in SM's case, she is attracted to the novelty of it. It is yeah. the novelty of this thing that is a, a hybrid creation or just an unreal entity that doesn't match up with the existing expectations. Right. She's being excited by the neural pathway that says, look at this. This is worth your attention. You should pay attention to it. Hmm. But she's not getting the part that says, get the hell away. Huh. Interesting. Now, on the other hand, if you think this condition of having a fear deficiency sounds great, like like you were like, I wish I had an amygdala lesion, uh, think again. Uh, Asthma reports that researchers have repeatedly had to prevent SM from putting herself in actual danger because the fear that would have prevented her from endangering herself was simply not operative. Huh. Uh, in the same way, you might not enjoy pain, but you wouldn't actually want to have the condition that prevents you from feeling pain because pain is very useful for survival. Oh, well, I mean, that matches up with touching the actors uh, at a haunted attraction. Like, it shows, like, a lack of of boundaries and understanding of those boundaries. I mean, not that the the actor is going to physically attack you, but, you know, she's she's breaking certain rules and expectations there. So, yeah, I wonder what role these types of arousal play in what led somebody in the Ice Age to create – a lion man figurine. I mean, assuming that this figure had some kind of fear or awe-inducing uh, significance, we don't know that it did, but we think, you know, monsters usually have some kind mm-hmm. of fear or awe-inducing uh, properties. If, if that's what was uh, part of the attitude toward this creature, could it be that it was created for this attentional arousal, this feeling of like, this isn't part of what I normally see, you know, the, the stimulation of the imagination? Yeah, I mean, what if uh, what if this thing was crafted and as it was passed it, passed around, like they were just feeling the the novelty of it. They were uh, and and maybe you know engaging with with certain uh, feelings of fear that came out of it, but they didn't have say a whole cosmology built up around it. Maybe it didn't have a name or a a purpose in the in the, the a magical world around them. But it was it was almost like like doing shots of espresso. Yeah, you know. It's, it's difficult. Of course, it's simplifying here, it's, but it's, it's, it is very difficult to try and put ourselves in in the mind of, of of such people. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's worth considering. Like we tend to assume it had something like what we would think of as a sacred or religious significance mm-hmm. right now, where the, you'd you'd participate in a ritual with it. But what if it was much more like us watching a horror movie or yeah. going to a haunted house? I think that's not impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, say, an image of uh, of, of the Hindu god uh, that we were talking about uh, earlier, Narasimha. Like, mm-hmm. you can look at that image without knowing anything about Hinduism, anything about the story that's being told, anything about the, the, you know, the various symbols that are at play here, and you can still have a very visceral reaction to it. You can have a you, – you, you feel something when you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you can you can feel something uh, rather different when you have this additional information about it. So it could be that maybe the Lion Man was part of a religious ritual or religious belief, but it could also just be that for some people who had a shallower engagement, it was just a thrill. Yeah. It was just facing the monster again. Yeah, because how many – we have so many unreal things in our world. We have so many monsters to turn to. But imagine living in a world where there's one unreal thing. There's Ooh. one unreal image. Ooh. That's it. And you get to touch it once a week. That's giving me the creeps, man. <laughs> a world with only one monster. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to get on one more aspect of Asma's paper before we finish out today. He actually talks about a bunch more stuff in his paper, like a, the the second half of it. 
is all about like xenophobia and mm-hmm. uh, the social implications of monster fear. And I want to talk about one more idea that he goes to, which is that monster horror is not just cognitive recognition, but also an affective emotional state. So Asma writes, quote, the emotion slash cognition complex in horror is a Yanis faced experience, partly imperative, as in I should run away, and partly indicative, that creature is part man and part snake. According to some philosophers of mine, like Ruth Milliken, this Yanis-faced representation is strongly coupled together in lower animals. Mice, for example, simultaneously recognize cats as a kind of thing in a category Mm -hmm. and as dangerous. So that's the fear affect. I should run away. Humans, on the other hand, can decouple these two pathways, indicative and imperative, and fear can be reattached to alternative kinds of creatures and perceptions. So here's where he's getting into the the monster generative capacity. It's like we've got these monster recognition pathways in the brain, but they're made for natural predators. And once we've got the power to put imaginative content on them, they can still be used in the same way. And in this way, Asma seems to think monster fear is caused by a system of what's known as, quote, somatic markers, essentially these trainable neural pathways that can be filled with emotional content based on experience. One more quote of his, quote, the point is that these emotional responses are not instincts in the sense of pre-wired or genetically engraved responses. The affective systems are ancient in the sense that they have many homologies with non-human animals, but in our individual lives, they're idiosyncratically assigned and have significant plasticity. So you can fill them up with whatever monsters happen to catch your fancy. And and the idea here is that imaginative monsters have this adaptive survival value. I mean, we talked in, uh, not to go (laughs) again to the bicameral mind episode, Mm -hmm. but one thing that uh, apart from the whole bicameral mind hypothesis, just taking out the whole, all of the bicamerality, one thing Julian Jaynes talked about was that he thought that the primary adaptive benefit of consciousness is that you could run simulations in your mind. Yeah. When you've got conscious thought, you've got this mind space where you can experiment with things. And uh, ultimately, asthma talks about fear of monsters being a similar thing. Monsters in your mind can provide a kind of mental training simulator, a place to work out emotional and behavioral responses to danger within the safety of the imagination. But because horror images have such strong access to our emotional reactions, he says, and this is an interesting bridge, they don't just train our behaviors, they train our values, Hmm. which gives them great power for good and ill in conditioning our moral judgments and opinions. This takes us back to St. Augustine, right? That monsters instruct a point. Stories about monsters so often have a moral or they teach some virtue. They, They tell you what you should do in a certain situation and condition your responses to it. And they're much more effective than normal teaching and instruction because they get at you emotionally. You know, you don't have to be lectured about what you should do. If you see an illustration within a monster story, you just feel emotionally what you should do. Yeah, because on one hand, they're simply saying, hey, kids, don't go swim in that creek. 
uh, without the adults around. And then there's, hey, kids, don't go swim in that creek without the adults around because there's a lecherous turtle man who will drown you, <laughs> you know? And yet we see that, of course, time and time again in uh, folklores where there is some sort of foul creature who will drown you if you swim uh, unattended. Yeah, and so I think this could be a very plausible explanation for the emergence of monsters in human history, that they could have emerged around the same time as language, as a social cohesion technique, and as a social uh, value instilling technique. They're, they're there to get people to believe things that would be hard to convince them to believe just by telling them. I like I, that, yeah. I shouldn't go off the path. I shouldn't mess around with somebody else's spouse. Yeah. I shouldn't, you know, all these things because why? Because a monster will get you if you do. Yeah, so many monsters are tied to boundaries. Cross the boundary and face the monster. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I guess that's the end that we we don't have ultimately the answer about when the first monster arose, but I think it's very plausible that they could have their their roots in social teaching. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, th- I feel like we've given we've given everybody some tremendous food for thought uh, in trying to unravel the the meaning of that uh, lion headed figure and what what it meant to people then, and what the idea of monster of the monster has continued to mean uh, for people in all subsequent generations. So, what do you think? May, what what could the lion man have been teaching? Was the Lowen Minch uh, a story about how don't go in strange caves? Or, oh yeah, I mean, I guess I'm will. Based on things I've read in the past, I'm more inclined to give it sort of a chaotic vibe, you know, like thinking of it in terms of ancient gods of the hunt and whatnot, that that this is some sort of an entity that represented, to whatever extent they were able to really think about it, this is a a figure that represented the uncertainty of the wild world they lived in. Now, was it chaotic good, chaotic neutral, or chaotic evil? I think just chaotic neutral. Like, the world has a certain amount of chaos in it, and some days you're going to go into the cave and there's going to be, and you will face the, the, the lion man. And then... You know, maybe you'll lock eyes with it and walk away, but maybe not. Some days you eat the low and minch, and some days the low and minch eats you. Amen, partner. All right. Well, on that note, uh, hey, if you want to see an image of this uh, fabulous statue and maybe some of these other uh, critters we've talked about, uh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find the landing page for this episode, along with all past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr. And hey, on Facebook, we have our main page there, uh, our main account. But then there's also the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's a closed group that you can uh, apply to. Uh, Pretty much everybody gets in. And then you can discuss episodes or unrelated topics with other listeners, uh, as well as uh, the hosts uh, themselves from time to time. And if you want to get in touch with us directly to give us feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a future episode topic, or just to say hi, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.